Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Today we're here to talk a little bit about telemedicine. Telemedicine was originally created as a way to treat patients who were located in remote places, far away from local health facilities, or in areas with shortages of medical professionals. While telemedicine is still used today to address these problems, it's increasingly becoming a tool for convenient medical care. Today's connected patient wants to waste less time in waiting rooms at the doctor and get immediate care for minor but urgent conditions when they need it. 90% of healthcare executives said they implemented uh, or are developing a telemedicine program. Most insurance providers now include coverage for some form of telemedicine. There aren't enough doctors to go around to meet the demand for treatment in the opioid epidemic. Could telemedicine be a piece of the puzzle to solve that problem? Joining me today to answer that question is the Executive Director of the Second Chance Counseling Service, Megan Peterson. Megan has over 15 years of counseling experience and, as Executive Director of Second Chance Counseling Services, oversees a telemedicine practice for addicts. So, Megan, Welcome. Thanks, Greg. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay. So let's start by having you describe for our listeners exactly what telemedicine is. Sure. So telemedicine is a, is a little bit of what you what you kind of spoke about earlier. It's it's really leveraging technology, but from a medical side, to be able to provide treatment to patients at a more convenient method. So typically, you're driving into a facility and you have to wait, and then you see your doctor, and we all know that generally they're not on time, you know, for reasons sometimes even unknown to us. Uh, And then you have to see them, wait to see them, uh, and then drive back to wherever your destination was. So telemedicine is is being leveraged in multiple different facets. So one, it's being leveraged for the patient that needs to go and see the doctor just for regular doctor appointments or, or visits or for the common cold but it's also being leveraged on a larger scale where hospitals are now, you know, being able to, let's say that you're in a rural area, but you have a condition that's not known, but there's a specialist in the larger city that's four hours away. A lot of the times now telemedicine is also being leveraged where physicians will be able to talk to other physicians and patients while they're still in that hospital to achieve diagnosis and see what the next, 
you know, plan of action would be for those patients. So how does someone access telemedicine? How does, how does the, tell us about how the pieces fit together on this. So I think there's two different sides of it. Obviously, there's facility to facility, but then there's patient to telemedicine. So how patients access it would also, you know, obviously be engaged in a program like ours where they would need therapy uh, for addiction. There's also other therapy platforms out there for mental health. And then there's also the uh, piece that includes your common cold. And those types of platforms would be like Teladoc or or Doctor on Demand. Those are going to be your platforms. And actually, I've used those already for our children when they've been sick and not have to drive out to a doctor to, to go see them. So that would be you have a common cold. You you know you've experienced it before. You you know what it is. You get online. You register. Uh, a lot of them take their your insurance at this point. So some of them you're even just paying a regular copay. And within 15 minutes, a doctor is calling you on your phone, and you see the doctor on the other end, and the doctor is able to see you through a video platform. And it's, it's HIPAA compliant. It's secure. And you have a conversation with the doctor and say, hey, this is my problem. These are my symptoms. The doctor, you know, goes down a, a list of things with you. And then typically, if you need an antibiotic, they'll call an antibiotic in for you right there into your, your local pharmacy. So... On the therapy aspect, same concept. You need therapy. You you know you send an appointment with your therapist. Your therapist you know will will meet with you on the platform. It's all HIPAA compliant. It's all secure. A therapist sees you on your time at your convenience. So there's not running back and forth anymore to either therapist office, doctor's office, whatever have you. It's really meeting that person when it's convenient for you and fitting it into your schedule and not the other way around. So, based upon the ailment, that determines what telemedicine, what, uh, I guess, treatment professional you contact and, and who you go to. Is that right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. So, you mentioned insurance, for the most part, covers it. What doesn't insurance cover when it comes to telemedicine? Because I know there's many different forms of it, right? There are. So, telemedicine is a really broad term right now. Some people use um, you know, chat and they call that telemedicine. Some people use phone and they call that telemedicine. Typically, uh, the way telemedicine is viewed on a, on a broader term is video. It's a video platform conference, basically. So a lot of the insurance companies right now have developed their own CPT codes for telemedicine. Some have not. Most have. Um, what's not reimbursed is like, obviously, like chatting and having that you know, be defined as telemedicine, that's not telemedicine, or email is not telemedicine, <laughs> so those things are not covered. Telemedicine is, is usually defined in the insurance space as having a live video conference back and forth with the provider and patient. So if a doc just got Skype, got set up on Skype, would that qualify as telemedicine? You know, if maybe. <laughs> Skype is not, we don't define Skype as being HIPAA compliant. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that if you look into getting a telemedicine platform, that it is super encrypted. And it takes a little bit of research to find out exactly what service, what servers they're using, how encrypted it is, how secure it is, and making sure that it is uh, being qualified underneath the HIPAA guidelines. So, you know, if you submitted it underneath that, if the insurance company, I guess, didn't ask a question that you're using Skype, 
maybe, but it's still not a, a necessarily a safe and secure form of doing treatment because you want to make sure that you're providing the, the most secure platform for your patients because obviously we want to make sure that we're not getting, um, you know, anybody in there being able to retrieve information on behalf of the patient. As far as insurance is concerned, from, for most patients' needs when it comes to telemedicine, insurance companies, in your experience, pretty much it's covered. Most are coming coming on the on this journey now. Yes, where they are developing their own codes to make sure that it's it's reimbursable. I think so. If you look at telemedicine on a whole, we have parity. I think in I believe it's like 32 states right now. And parity meaning that telemedicine is viewed the same way it would be if a person was going in and getting treated from a a physician on that level. So. You know, obviously, it's not all 50 states yet. We're continuing to make progress, but most insurance companies at this point are covering it in some way or another. Okay. So now let's talk in a little greater detail on how telemedicine comes into play when it comes to treating addiction. Well, as you know, a lot of the things that we're doing right now, I mean, they're obviously not working. (laughs) You know, we have an epidemic in this country, and one of the reasons that we started this company is because you know, what I found being a therapist and seeing the patients that I was seeing is a lot of the times we have expectations for the patients when they're just getting clean. And sometimes I think that those expectations oftentimes will set them up uh, quite possibly for failure in the future because some of the expectations are just far too great. You know, we expect them to be clean. We expect them to get their family, you know, life back together and mend those relationships. We expect them to get a job. We expect them to do all these things. And come to therapy at this time because this is the only time we have available. (laughs) So I think with me doing this, I was like, this is ridiculous. We have our phone on us all the time (laughs) and or we're in front of a computer because we are working and we're doing things. Why not leverage technology to be able to see your therapist when it's convenient for you? Meaning now you can talk to a therapist at six o'clock in the morning where, I mean, I don't know a whole lot of facilities that are open at six o'clock in the morning to see patients, but now you could talk to a therapist at 6 a.m. before you go to work because that therapist is more than likely in their home as well and they can connect with you before you both go about your day. Or you can do it on your lunch break or you could do it in the evening once you put your kids to bed. So you're not driving back and forth through traffic to try to, you know, get to somebody on time and and possibly be late and having that extra added stress. Because I think, at least for me too, you know, just going to a doctor's office myself, if I have to take the kids to the doctor, whatever the case may be, you know, I feel like I'm always trying to beat the clock because we live in a world where everybody's just crazy busy at this point in time. So this way we bring therapy to you, not you going to therapy. And I think making it as easy and accessible for patients as we possibly can and supporting them, I think that's a, the, the, greater, the greater need is the extra added support built in there is going to lead for success for, for the patients. So do most therapists have this? Do they, most therapists offer this? Because the way that I envision it is you get rolling with a therapist that happens to be in your plan and in your geography, and then you would probably, after some face-to-face, transition to this type of thing. Isn't that kind of the way that it would go, or no? Some, some do that. The way our platform is set up is you never would necessarily see it. Well, no, you wouldn't ever see a therapist face-to-face on our platform because we're having patients, let's say from a, let's say from a, a geography standpoint, because I'm a native to Pennsylvania, so we can have somebody in Philadelphia 
be talking a patient from Philadelphia talking to a therapist in Pittsburgh. Like, I don't see them driving to each other to see each other Mm -hmm. because it's just too far of a span. So in some ways, it really opens up the, the possibility of seeing other people, though, that aren't in your local area, because that's also a challenge, too. Some patients don't want to see therapists in their area because a lot of people do know everybody, or they don't want to be seen going into a facility that is in their neighborhood because sure. they don't want to be stereotyped. Yeah. So this way, you're able to connect with a therapist, not by a ge- geographical area, but basically it's still by state. Because just from insurances and licensures and things like that, you're still meeting with a therapist within your state. But it could really be, you you could be anywhere, the two of you. Yeah. It's so important that you have a good match, right, between therapist and patient. Speak to how different that is and and, or like face-to-face. They were just talking on the news today about how um, a celebrity was seeking treatment for alcoholism and they, he basically came out and said, I needed to go through two therapists before I found that one that I really needed to speak to. And I think that that's really important, too, because a lot of patients will start engaging in therapy and they realize, like, hey, I really don't connect with this, with this therapist. And then they give up. And, and then no one's the wiser, right, because you're, now you're kind of still stuck and you're not seeing anybody. So what we found, though, doing from a telemedicine aspect is, A lot of times when patients are going into offices, some offices can be very comfortable, some offices can be very sterile. Either way, it's not your home environment. So I personally, and I'm speaking just from experience on my behalf, I've actually found it more successful to talk to patients over video when they're in their own environment because they're comfortable already. So I'm really getting, other other than some of them getting past the weirdness of talking to somebody on the phone or over the computer, uh, it's really you get the authentic person because they're on their couch having a conversation with you in their own environment versus in an office where, you know, they're waiting and they're, they're a little uneasy. So I haven't found it to be too much different. Obviously, I can't reach out and, and give that, that patient, you know, uh, a hug if they asked for it or, you know, there's no... Um, personal contact that can be made over video, but I can still read body language. I can still read eye movements. I can still read uncomfortableness because I'm still able to see that person on the other end. And I think that's why telemedicine from a video standpoint is really super important because when you start engaging in just text message or chat back and forth, a lot of things can be misinterpreted or misread. Versus if you're having a conversation with somebody and you're really seeing them and you're, and you're being able to interact back and forth, I, I don't feel like it's that much different. If I'm a traditional uh, therapist and I've got a, a traditional practice, how difficult or easy is it to add telemedicine to my practice? It's not difficult at all. A little bit of research to make sure that you're on a really good platform or if you currently have an EMR or an EHR, some of them now are are offering video as well. I think it's just the the most difficult part for therapists is getting, at least that I've seen personally, is getting over the the hurdle of that this is a video-based therapy platform because telemedicine is still so new to a lot of providers that you know, just like the patients, they're a little bit scared, like, okay, what is this really going to look like and how is this going to work? So I think once you get past that fear, it's, it's really quite easy. So Megan, tell us a little bit about how you would go about vetting telemedicine options. Sure, that's, 
that's a great question. So if patients want to go to an individual provider or an individual therapist in their area that's utilizing telemedicine, I tell people that when you're looking for a therapist, you almost need to treat it like the therapist is at a job interview. It's, it's your therapy, and you need to take control of your therapy. So you as the patient need to ask really good questions of that therapist, and that therapist should be able to answer those for you. Questions like, you know, what type of platform do you use so that that patient can take a look to make sure that it is HIPAA compliant on their end. Like for instance, we use, uh, we use WeCounsel as our platform. So WeCounsel is a HIPAA compliant platform. They use uh, video based, they use uh, in-house email, they also use chat, but it's all done in-house within the platform itself so it's all secure. Like text messaging back and forth to a provider on their, on their personal cell phone, like that wouldn't be a platform. That's just text messaging somebody. That's not necessarily secure, right? So yep. you want to make sure that your interactions with your provider are secure at all times. Okay. So from a vetting standpoint, the patients need to ask really good questions of that therapist. Ask what type of therapy models do they use? You know, how do they conduct therapy? What do they think that this is going to look like on their behalf? You know, so if I was a patient, I would go to a therapist and say, look, um, you know, I'm coming in to see you for treatment. This is, you know, the issue that I've been struggling with. How can you help me with this? And it's really, you know, you want to make sure that you understand what type of therapy they're providing. Are they going to give you homework, which I'm a big proponent of. I think that therapy is an ongoing thing. I don't think it's a thing where you just sit and listen. I think it should be active and active role back and forth, you know, both a give and take on both ends. So, you know, do you do those things? Are, you know, are you doing cognitive, you know, behavioral therapy? Or are you using other modalities uh, of treatment? So I think it's, it's important for the patient to ask those questions so that they know the therapist that they want to go to. And just don't go to one, you know, you're basically interview a couple therapists. And then from that point, decide which one you think was a better fit for you. You just don't have to go to the first one that you pick and then that's it. I mean, therapy does need to, to be looked at on a whole, like what's in the best interest of you, the patient. What are the components of what you feel to be best practices in telemedicine? So I, I'm a big proponent myself of frequent interactions. You know, that's why we use, you know, the platform that we do. I think that I think that we need to be more cognizant of where the patient is in their recovery and not be it's okay to set up expectations but there's a difference between setting expectations and being demanding. I think sometimes we're too demanding and we set up unrealistic expectations for our patients. So we need to meet them where they are. You know, we need to find out what do they want in their recovery because it's really about them, it's not about us. Patients set up barriers for themselves, right? So we're really removing a lot of those barriers now, and, and ownership is now all on the patient. Like, there's, there's no excuse now. You can't say traffic. You can't say kids. You can't say my car broke down. You can't say this. Like, there's no excuse for you not to get therapy. Megan, can you share some statistics with us on the effectiveness of telemedicine in your practice? Well, we're actually currently collecting uh, data as we speak for clinical outcomes for our patients. Uh, I can share success stories with you as far as, 
you know, patients being on the platform and what they, what I have heard back, feedback from them as far as what they like so far. So as far as, you know, patient engagement on our end, you know, I was treating patients um, myself as a therapist for over a year. So I had a pretty high retention rate for patients that wanted to engage. Um, I'm thinking specifically about one patient that, that came to us and, you know, basically they were, at that point where it was an opiate, he, he's an opiate-dependent patient, and he was seeking treatment because his family basically caught his addiction and demanded that he go in treatment. And within the first couple of sessions, you know, he expressed that he liked the convenience of doing this because he was still working. So he actually connected with me at lunchtime and would be able to have a conversation. And in the beginning, you know, one of the things that he expressed was, you know, I'm not really too sure about this. At this point, I'm really kind of doing therapy because my family wants me to. I don't really know if I've kind of quite hit bottom, so to speak. And I said, you know what, that's okay, because at least you're being honest with me, and that's tangible, and we can work with that, and we can continue to move on. And that's one of the things that we do, um, you know, with the treatment that we provide, is we meet the patient where they are. I don't, I don't expect a patient to come on and say, hey, I'm ready, you know, cure me, let's go. It's a journey. And if you're honest with us, at least we can work with that and we can continue to move on. So fast forward to, you know, three and a half months later, I got a phone call from the, from the patient and, um, and he said, hey, I just wanted to say thank you and well, I'm ready. And I was like, ready for what? And he said, I'm really actually ready for my recovery now. And thank you for taking the time in, in speaking with me at lunch. It's been really convenient. It's been easy. I appreciate you listening. And my life has definitely changed over the past three months to a point where I really don't have any desire to go back there like I did in the beginning. How's that gentleman doing now? He's doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Yeah, um, he's been a, a really a, a wonderful pleasure to, to work with. He's grown leaps and bounds in, in therapy. So, Megan, this has really been enlightening. What haven't we covered? I don't know. That's a really good question. I think we've covered a lot. I just I encourage people to do it. You know, start, start utilizing telemedicine. I mean, not just from a therapy standpoint. I think patients need to get out there and, and realize that there is another way uh, for treatment. There is another way for them. It's convenient. But I also think looking at other avenues, though, too, I, I really do believe in telemedicine from all facets. Like, I... It, when my kids have a common cold anymore, like I don't take them to the doctor or to the urgent care. Uh, you know, I have them meet with a with a doctor right from their bed. I, in fact, I remember a specific situation where our daughter had strep throat and, you know, started out with a sore throat and we kind of let it go to see how it would manifest itself. Well, she woke up at 10 o'clock at night, um, low-grade fever, nauseous, uh, throat was really sore. I was able to kind of look down her throat a little bit, and of course it's red and streaky the way strep would, would look like. Mind you, 10 o'clock at night this is. So we called up the, the doctor and said, hey, this is what's going on. The doctor said, you know, can you hold the, the phone up to your throat? Can I look at your throat a little bit? Give me the symptoms. Yes, it, it definitely looks like it is symptomatic of strep throat. Let me call you in an antibiotic. Daughter never had to leave the bed. Was called in an antibiotic at one of the local pharmacies. She had it in her system within 1045. Next day, she woke up feeling like a million bucks. So I think, I think we need to realize that there is a different way and, you know, possibly a better process as far as going, going about convenience with both from the medical side and from the therapy side. 
and really just start to to utilize that to our benefit. Wow, that's I mean that's a game changer. It really is. No, it absolutely is. I mean, when did you go to see a doctor at 10 o'clock, you know, other than the ER, which the ERs don't want you in there at 10 o'clock for strep throat. You know, they're they're taking care of much more pertinent instances. Sure. You know, what, you know, actually, I will talk about one other thing. One of the other things that we're doing uh, right now that's really exciting is we're actually also utilizing this to leverage uh, inpatient to outpatient recovery. Because typically when you're talking about addiction, in the addiction space, there's a huge gap, right? Patients go inpatient, they come out with an aftercare plan. Uh, Sometimes they don't know who their therapist is or they don't engage with that therapist right away. And typically, speaking from a statistical standpoint, that's like the highest time where we lose patients back to their addiction, right? Yep. Because they're going back to their home, uh, you know, they're they're looking at their triggers, you know, other people are starting to call them again because they know their home and everything's kind of going haywire. So one of the things that we're doing is we're actually utilizing our platform and partnering with inpatient facilities. So being that we have therapists in all 50 states at this point that's cross-coverage is we're able to now go and have a therapist talk to a patient while they're still inpatient and talk to that therapist that's taking care of that patient while they're still in an inpatient treatment facility and closing that gap. So now therapists on our end knows the patient you know, has already seen them, has already had a discussion with them, knows what the aftercare plan is, and immediately after the patient gets discharged, they have an appointment set up with our therapist like very next day where they're still home and they can engage with with their therapist right there, either themselves, you know, we could start doing family therapy if need be uh, as well. So we're really we're really trying to leverage this type of technology to close a lot of these treatment gaps and make sure that we have a higher recovery success rate for these patients. Because I think we owe it to them. Like we're clearly not doing something right right now. We're not being, uh, you know, supportive enough as a country. I, I firmly believe that. I think that there's still a lot of stereotypes and a lot of barriers that need to be broken down. I think that we need to support everybody and help them in their recovery and make this easy for them, not throw up barriers and make, you know, additional challenges for them and make it difficult for them to get the success that they really that they really deserve. So, Megan, this has really been enlightening. Thank you today. What uh, final comments would you have for our listeners? If you need help, get it. There's really nothing stopping patients at this point from getting the, the treatment that they need. I mean, we're, we're available, you know, I think that the, the biggest challenge for us that I've seen is that patients, it's difficult for them to take that step to admit and then get help. So just knowing that we're there and that we're going to meet them where they're at and we're available, um, I think is huge. Well, thank you again, Megan. We've been visiting today with Megan Peterson. Megan has over 15 years of counseling experience, and she's the executive director of Second Chance Counseling Services and clearly a leader when it comes to telemedicine and specifically telemedicine as it relates to the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources, 
and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.